welcome to the Sydney Uni EU podcast. Today's talk is from One Corinthians three to four and was given by Rowan Kemp. Great to see you here at the EU public meeting. If I haven't met you before, my name's Rowan. I lead the staff team that work alongside the EU. Really glad you could join us here today. There's a line, a tagline up here on the screen: "Leadership for good starts here." I wonder if that's familiar to you. Have you seen or heard that somewhere before? Chat to the person next to you, you've got about 10 seconds. Where have you seen or heard that, that tagline, leadership for good starts here? If I show you this next picture, uh, it might jog your memory. Uh, that's, East, that's Eastern Avenue. Uh, you probably walk past it, well, I don't know, maybe you get several times a day, as you're walking along Eastern Avenue against the Eastern Ave- Avenue Auditorium right there, sort of between the law building and before you get to uh, Cars Law, there, there's a massive big poster that you walk past every day. Leadership for Good starts here. It's Sydney University's tagline. If you go to any Sydney University webpage and scroll to the very bottom, whoever scrolls to the very bottom, but if you scroll to the very bottom, that is on the bottom of every single web page. Leadership for good starts here. This is what Sydney University is on about. Leadership for good starting here. Now, this is the sort of place that Sydney University apparently believes itself to be. I maybe, maybe I'm a bit cynical. I just suspect it's possibly the marketing department who think that this will appeal to you so that you'll come here and that you'll give your enrolment fees to Sydney Uni and not some competitive institution. But I'll tell you what I like about it. I like that it's about doing good. It's not meant to be about you, right? It's actually about making a difference in the world for the sake of others. I also like the fact that it is about the wider world, making a difference out there beyond nanoscience, the quad, Eastern Avenue, ABS, and making a difference out there. It starts here but it has aspirations to make a difference out there. I like those things. Now you've come to an EU public meeting and in the Evangelical Union, what we do every every time we meet is we open God's word, the, the Christian Bible, and we want to let the Bible give us the lens through which we see the world. And so what we want to do here is, what else does the Bible change how you read this statement? How does it, sort of inform your evaluation of this statement, that leadership for good, apparently, starts here. That's what we're going to think about today. Now, why are we thinking about this? Well, these first four weeks of the EU public meeting, we've been looking at the opening chapters of 1 Corinthians from the Christian New Testament, and leadership pops up as one of the big key issues in the opening chapters of this letter. Turns out that leadership was a hot topic back then in first century Corinth in Greece, just as it is today. The Apostle Paul, as he writes this letter, is particularly addressing the issue of leadership within God's people, within the church. So we're going to start there. So here's my question for you. If, I mean, you might not be a Christian person. That's great. We, the EU public meetings are public. They're open to everybody. We want everyone to come and, and read God's word in the Bible and see what they think of it. But if you go to church currently, I want you to think about this for a moment. How does your church sort of stack up in the leadership stakes. Just thinking about your your church pastor or your minister or the ministry team at your church, maybe even your church Bible study leader. 
how, do the, how would you rate them in terms of leadership, you know, in terms of sort of providing vision and strategy for you and your church? Are they inspiring? Or, or frankly, think about your leaders here in the EU. Think about the faculty leaders, the student faculty leaders or the student executive or the staff. If you had to give them a rating out of 10, if you had to sort of rate them in terms of their leadership capacity or their capability, what would you give them? The pastoral team in your church, what would you give them? Maybe a five and a half? Maybe eight, eight and a half. Stop, don't, don't, do not, do not think about that question anymore, right? Because <laughs> what I just did was I, very deliberately, and I make no apology, I just led you into, without you realizing it, it seems, led you into a minefield. Because asking that question is a very, very dangerous question in the Christian community. It's a very common question in the rest of the world to evaluate leadership. It's a very dangerous question to walk that worldly value into the Christian community and just assume we should be asking the same questions. Now, it seemed to me that you followed me very happily down that question. You were starting to think, yeah, the pastoral to my church, what would I give them? Like you, you, you didn't think twice about it, right? You didn't, no one was saying, Shut him up. Stop him. He's, he's doing a terrible thing at the front. You're like, oh, yeah, okay, well, whatever. Yeah, like, <laughs> like, and, that's, and that's because we're so used to it in the rest of the world. We're just so used to it. We too are in danger of walking just the worldly understanding of leadership and how to judge, evaluate leadership, just walking that into the church. So what we're going to do here is you now we need to stop, take a big, deep breath, and gingerly, tentatively, I'm going to try to lead us out of this minefield. How do we actually untangle this issue of thinking about leadership from a Christian framework in the light that God gives us in his word? So we're looking at this section from 1 Corinthians, particularly chapters 3 and 4. And I've got three points to make out of this, this passage. The first point is this. Christian leaders, according to this text here, are powerless servants. God is everything. This comes from the section we just had read for us, particularly chapter 3, verses 5 to 9. You might have noticed in this section how Paul is constantly redirecting their focus from the leaders back to God himself. So two foundational things that Paul says about Christian leaders here. First of all, leaders or just Christian ministers, anyone doing Christian ministry, they are Jesus' servants. You can see it there in verse 5. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each. So let's not get too carried away with this or that Christian minister or leader, since according to the Bible, they are all just servants. It's the Lord Jesus who's the focus. He's the one we're all serving together. So don't get caught up on which servant served you. Was it Paul? Was it Apollos? Was it your... Who cares? We're all, they're all just servants of the Lord Jesus. He's the focus. Now, how does, that, how does just that one simple truth, how does that shape us? Well, two ways, inwardly and outwardly. Inwardly, that's a reality check for our own ego. Don't think we're something special. We're all just servants. It's the Lord Jesus who's the focus. In fact, he's the one who's given you the task of ministry. He's the one who's called you to be a faithful steward of the gifts that he's given you for his work. You're a servant of Jesus here. This is not actually about you. 
And that's a quite an interesting point of d- distinction from the way the world thinks about leadership. Our world says leadership is something you can claim. It's implicit there in the Sydney University tagline, isn't it? Why tell the world leadership for good starts here? It's so that the people can go, well, I want to be a leader. I want to claim that, so I better get to Sydney Uni. I mean, I don't know if anyone actually enrols at Sydney Uni because of that tagline, but, but the marketing department have paid a lot of money, so let's hope that it's somewhat effective. This is quite different to the world, though, isn't it? Leaders are just servants. In the world, I set out to do whatever good I think the world needs, but the living Lord Jesus says... Actually, here's my kingdom, here's my gospel plan for the world, and here's your part as my loved servant with the opportunities I give you and the gifts I give you. It's not about me. It's not about you. Notice, um, you might know this from what Jesus says in Luke chapter 17, verse 10. Jesus says there, When you have done everything you were told to do, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. That's the attitude Jesus encourages us to have as his loved and precious servants. We have done what he's asked us to do. That's how it affects us inwardly, I think, this truth, that it's sort of a check for our, a reality check on our ego. But outwardly, what it means is, Just make sure you're not getting swept along by this or that impressive leader or minister or preacher. Keep the focus on the Lord Jesus, whom we serve together. Maybe that will change how you think about the church you're part of or other churches. Second point from this passage is that leaders are united in their powerlessness. It's God who gives the growth. This is from verses 6 and 7 there. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He's referring to the fact that he was the the guy through whom the gospel, the good news about Jesus, first came to Corinth. He planted the seed. Apollos came in after Paul, after Paul had moved on and left this little baby church. Apollos came in and was a great teacher of God's word. He watered it, so to speak. But the point that he makes is, whilst we've all got our part in God's growing program, we're united, he says here, in being nothing. We are nothing. Why? Because God alone brings the growth. He alone can bring the growth. How does this affect us? Well, again, inward and outward. I'll start with outward. Don't fall into the trap, and I find this is very common, don't fall into the trap of thinking that this great ministry, whatever it is, or this booming church, or this cutting-edge church plant, is make, which seems to be making real kingdom gains into the culture, don't fall into the trap of thinking that any of that is actually because of the awesome ministers or leaders who are there. Because all genuine gospel growth comes from God. Without him choosing to work, it doesn't matter how impressive the vision, how cool the building, how interesting the aesthetic, how inspiring the preaching, none of the actual effectiveness of the ministry can be attributed directly to us. 
All the growth is from God. Now, of course, he, he uses the one who plants the seed and he uses the one who waters the seed. He uses their gifts and their service to grow his kingdom. But the growth, any growth, comes from him. Without him choosing to work, we are powerless. You know, um, here, here's an interesting idea. There's a lot of people at Sydney Uni who don't know Jesus. And you might not know, the EU has a particular ministry called EU Street Team. EU Street Team like to go up to people, just random people on campus, and try to engage them in conversation and just say, do you know anything about the Lord Jesus? Would you like to know something about the Lord Jesus? Now, if you've never done some um, sort of EU Street Team ministry, if you've just never actually tried to do that, that might sound super, super scary. But actually, it's super, super awesome fun times. Like, it is just really actually, because you get to, I mean, you might get about five people who say, nah, not interested, no thanks, no thanks, oh, that's all fine. And then you'll sit there and go, yeah, actually, I've been thinking about Jesus. And you're going, what the, okay, right, um, right, well, can we talk about Jesus? Yeah, yeah, let's talk about Jesus. And then you have, you have this full-on conversation about Jesus. There are people out there right now in whom God is working by his spirit who are open and ready for that. So here's a, here's a crazy idea. After this, we could go to lunch together. That's fun. That's nice. Or we could all just go and do 30 minutes of street and just see who the Lord opens up for us, right? Now, just, just an interesting thought. But we could do that and go, actually, well, that's a nice idea, 30 minutes, Ryan, but that's not enough. Let's do it for three hours every afternoon for the rest of the year. Okay, right. Well, you know, we could do that and not have one fruitful conversation. We get everybody in the EU to do it, hundreds of people to spend hundreds of hours doing that and not have a single fruitful conversation. Because you know what? It's not just sort of random out there about whether a conversation happens or not. It's all under God's control. If he doesn't choose to work, nothing will happen. I can stand here and wave my hands around like a crazy person, which is what I tend to do, and. <laughs> get all excited and the Lord speak nothing into your heart because it's the Lord who speaks into your heart. It all comes from God. So how does that affect us inwardly? How does that truth affect us inwardly? I asked the EU staff team this very question on Monday. We were meeting together and I was saying, I was thinking about this passage. I said, what, 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 how does that truth affect you? And they said two things. Oh, they were great. They said the first thing was it made them want to pray. If God is the one who brings growth, then it just, if that just that truth reminds me, oh, I just need to pray more. And it's not the prayer is magical. It's not like if I can you know, pray X percentage of the day, then God will definitely. It doesn't work like that, does it? So, but it just, if the reality is he's the one who brings the growth, doesn't that make you want to pray for your youth group this week? Doesn't it make you want to pray for the kids' church lesson that you're trying to prepare sometime? Doesn't it make you want to pray for the kids' club that you're going to go to and where you're down to sort of share that story about Jesus? You just know those seven and eight-year-olds are going to be going crazy because it's a Friday afternoon. And Doesn't it make you want to pray that God would actually take that moment and do something? He's the one who brings the growth. The second thing that they said was, it brings relief. 
because I realized, actually, you know what? It isn't all up to me. I use the opportunities that God gives me. I use the, the gifts that he gives me. It's not all up to me. So I don't know if you're leading a bunch of year eight boys in Bible study. And let me tell you, that's one of the hardest things you can do for Jesus. But, you know, like they, they are just crazy times, right? They are just crazy. And then you, you have a moment and you say something from the Bible. You, you, know, you try to get them to open the Bible, not use it to hit each other. They open the Bible and you're talking about it. And you just realize that there's that moment where they suddenly all go quiet. And, you, and they, they're clearly thinking about that thing that you just said. And someone makes a really sensible answer. And someone else comes back on top and you just think, I've cracked this. I am now like the most awesome year eight boys youth leader ever in the history of Christendom because like I have, no, it's not you. God is the only one who brings any growth at any point in time. And that's a relief because it's up to him. But it makes us want to pray. We in the EU are very busy. We're great activists. We do a lot for Jesus. We run things and we organize things and we plan things and we just do, 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 do. You know that the very first generation of EUers, one of the things that other people commented on was that they were great prayers. They would stay up sometimes all night praying. I mean, all night gaming, that sentence makes sense. All night praying, what's that? I just wonder if we've lost something. This perspective. For your thoughts, for your conversations with one another. Okay, so, first point, Christian leaders are powerless servants, God is everything. A few of the implications of that. Secondly, second point from this passage, the Lord will hold all leaders accountable. Now, the Corinthians were right into evaluating their leaders. Some were saying, Paul, he was the guy who planted this church, he's awesome. Some were saying, but Apollos, he was so good with his words, his teaching was amazing. And so they were dividing into factions over which was the better leader, which was the better gospel minister. Paul actually says, you guys should not be walking that worldly type of evaluation into the church. You shouldn't be doing that. An evaluation of the leadership is coming, but it's not from you. God's the one who's going to evaluate their leadership. Have a look at this. Uh, it's in chapter 3, verses 10 to 17, which we had read for us, and also a bit more in chapter 4. Uh, he doesn't, God's not going to hold ministers or leaders accountable for the fruit from their work, from their ministry, because God's the one who brings the fruit. He's going to hold them accountable for how they've gone about ministry. And Paul moves from an agricultural image to a building image, a construction image. This is not any old building project, though. This is building a temple for God himself, a dwelling place for God, is what he says. Now, if, if you were to get an assignment to sort of build a house for God, or even better than an assignment, say that you wake up in the middle of the night tonight when you're asleep, you wake up and you go, I've just had a dream. And in the dream, God said to me, build me a house. I mean, you might freak out if you had, but you think you wake up in the night, you've just had this dream, and in the dream, God says to you, build me a house. 
Well, two, two things. I thought, first of all, what sort of house would you build for him? I mean, you're probably going to build a pretty good house, right? Because it's, he's God. So you want to build him a pretty good house, not a shack. You want to build him a big house. So you head down to the architectural department and you sort of try to get their best minds and you try to build him. Okay, you try to build him a... Because he's God. His house has to be awesome. But here's the second thing. If you do have that dream, I'm just going to tell you straight up right now, it's not from God. Because God is not going to tell you to build him a house. Now, that's a pretty outrageous thing for me to say. How can I be so definitive that God is not going to tell you that? How do you, how do you know, Rowan? Maybe he will. No, I'm going to say to you, he won't. And the reason God is not going to tell you to build him a house is because he's already built himself a house. And what God's Bible tells us right here is that you are his house. He says here in chapter 3, verse 9, you are God's field, God's building. Or in chapter 3, verse 16, 17, do you not know that you are God's temple, that God's spirit dwells in you? You are his house, both individually, you are a temple, a house for the Holy Spirit. And us together, we're told, we are God's house. And the point that Paul makes here is that if you're involved in the building of this house, which is what ministry is, then you're going to be held accountable by him for how you've gone about the building project. In chapter 3, verses 10 to 15, he points out there's a coming day when God will test how each of us, if you're a Christian person, how each of us have built in his construction project, how you've gone about ministry. He's going to test it himself. Have you ministered well? And this passage tells us that the question is, have you ministered, have you built with flame-proof products, gold, uh, gold, silver, precious stones, or have you built with flammable products, wood, hay, or straw? Because it says God is going to test your ministry and he's going to test it with a flamethrower. That is metaphorically. He's going to fire up the flamethrower, look at what you have done in ministry, and he's going to and see what happens. And if what all those Bible studies you've led, all of those kids' church talks, all of, he's going to and if what you've built is burnt up, or is what you've built going to survive? Depends on what you've built with. Were they flame-proof products or were they flammable products? And we've got to get inside that metaphor, right? Now you go, well, what, what are we talking about here? What, what is the difference between those two things? So, in fact, in this passage, there's three different groups, three different types of builders that are identified. The first one are the demolishers who are destroyed. Look in verse 17. This is the end of the reading that we had. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. So these are those people who, instead of building God's people, they actually end up tearing God's people down. These are the people who are causing division, people who are discouraging the flock or who set a bad example for the flock or who teach untruths from God's word. Um, The warning for these people is very severe. If you destroy God's temple, God will destroy you. So if you minister in such a way that God's people are torn down, Instead of built up, you've got to watch out because God's temple, the church of his people, is precious and holy to him. And we need to heed that warning. So I want to ask you seriously, because I, I don't know the details of your life. 
Are you causing needless division in your church? You know, by complaining about this, the way that our church does this thing or the way they do this thing. And if those things are not actually important gospel things, are you causing needless division in your church? Factions. Are you, by your speech, tearing people down behind their backs rather than using your language and tongue to build people up? Are you spreading slander or gossip? Are you speaking the truth to kids and youth but actually living a lie? Because at the end of the day, they'll be led astray by your hypocrisy. Are you using the church even for your own evil ends? Are you preying on people to satisfy your quest for just importance or for, for greed, for, for fame, for prestige, for sex? If any of that resonates with you, please, for your sake, actually, and for the sake of God's church, you need to repent from that. You need to seek his abundant forgiveness and mercy because the Lord does not desire anyone to be destroyed. But you need to heed God's warning. His temple is holy and precious to him and he will destroy those who destroy his temple. The second group of people we meet in this passage are the me-centered whose ministry is burnt up. These are the people who instead of building with gold, silver and precious stones, they've built with flammable products, with the wood, hay and straw. So how, what does it mean to build with flammable products? I think the key is in chapter 4, verse 5. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 5. Paul says there, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. And here's the key bit. Will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. The focus is on your motives. Why were you doing that ministry? Were you doing it to get praise from others, which means really you're doing it for yourself? Or were you doing it for God? It was the Corinthian culture to seek praise or commendation from people. They wanted human respect, human honour and glory. And they'd walked that value into the church. They were more interested, if you like, in me ministry rather than him ministry, if you get what I mean there. The motive was for themselves, their own ego, their own self-esteem, not God's glory. But God says the day's coming when the motives of your heart are going to be exposed. So if you're doing me ministry, you need to watch out because you're building with flammable products and there is a firestorm coming. You will be saved, we're told, on that final day because you've got real trust in Jesus. But that final day will reveal the motives of your ministry and you could well end up with nothing left. So make sure you get your motives right. Put to death pride. In the power of the spirit within you, get rid of that envious heart of a me-centered ministry. Instead, seek God's glory. Remember, you're God's servant in God's construction project. All the glory is his. And finally, there's the wise builder who receives a reward. The wise builder is the one who's done two things. First of all, they've built with the right motives. That's what it means to build with precious stones, silver or gold. Minister with all the strength and the gifts and the opportunities that God gives you, but do it for his glory, not your own. Secondly, you need to build on the right foundation. As Paul says in chapter 3, verse 11, no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. We're going to come back to that in a moment. 
And what's promised the wise builder here in chapter 314 is a reward. If what has been built on the foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward. What's the reward? A great mansion by the seaside, by the beach in the new creation. I mean, when we think what reward might God, God give me if I minister to his glory and in humility. No, we're just sort of too, too infected by our, our worldly Sydney obsession with property prices and holidays by the beach, right? That's just, what's the reward that God might give those who minister well? Well, the best suggestion I've come across is that it's the praise of God himself. I think that's what chapter 4 verse 5 teaches you. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Because the Corinthians were all into receiving praise from other people. And Paul says, actually, you want praise from God, don't you? Isn't that what you want? Isn't the best reward you can possibly imagine from God the moment when actually... You see Jesus face to face and he's looking you right in the eye. He's looking you, the living Lord Jesus in his glory is looking you right in that eye and he says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. When that happens, you'll probably be feeling pretty great right then. And that probably, you know, you'll probably feel pretty great about that for, I don't know, eternity. Like you'll just feel great about that for a long time. Because Jesus, the living Lord Jesus, said to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Because in your weakness and your frailty and your mistakes, you tried to serve him for his glory. Well done, good and faithful servant. You receive praise from God okay well those are the first two things we see in this passage and I'm going to wind it up in, in, with this final point the last thing that we find in this passage relevant to the issue of leadership is that Christian leaders embody the cross of Jesus one of the scariest things I think actually about this section of 1 Corinthians is that the issue for the Corinthians wasn't that they just misunderstood leadership Paul points out that that actually misunderstood Christian life. It's because they misunderstood Christian life that they had got leadership wrong. And so you can read this in chapter 4, and I'm going to leave you to read through chapter 4, particularly verses 8 through to 17. In that section, Paul contrasts the Corinthians, their, their Christ, their, the Corinthian Christians, their attitude to life with his own attitude to life. And the Corinthian Christians were saying, we're the boss, we're ruling, we're reigning like kings. We have got it all. They, but Paul contrasted it for himself where he says, I'm like one who feels condemned to die in the arena, you know, eaten by wild animals in the Colosseum. I'm a laughingstock. I'm persecuted. I'm a spectacle of derision and scorn. We're fools for Christ, he says. We're weak and dishonored. But you talk about yourselves as so wise and so strong and so honoured. He's pointing out there's a massive difference in how they understand the Christian life. Paul says, to this very moment, I go around hungry and thirsty. I'm clothed in rags. We're brutally treated. We're homeless, cursed, persecuted, slandered, viewed as scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. That's not a terribly attractive picture, is it, of Christian life and Christian leadership? 
But then Paul has the temerity to say to the Corinthian Christians, he says, therefore, because my life's like that, I urge you to imitate me. Paul, you've got to be kidding. What? In, in your beatings, in your rags, in your poverty, dishonor and shame? Imitate you. How are we going to win converts in sophisticated Corinth, sophisticated Sydney, if we don't look impressive? Who's going to respect us? Who's going to listen to us? But then Paul says, but this is the way of the Lord Jesus. This is what it is to build on a foundation of the Lord Jesus. The only foundation there can be for Christian ministry. It has to be cross-shaped. That's God's wise foolishness. That's God choosing the weak to shame the strong. This is Christian life and leadership in the shadow of the cross. It's the same shadow. See, what our world wants is our world wants slick professionalism. And we think, therefore, that's what Christian ministry needs to be. That it needs to be smooth, impressive, powerful, needs to have lots of people there, the appearance of power and wisdom and strength in the world's eyes. But I wonder at that point, when we buy into that, have we forgotten the very character of Christian life? There's power, but it's God's power expressed in human weakness, seen at the cross of Jesus, that looks like a failure. There's wisdom, but it's God's wisdom, which often appears as human folly to those without the Spirit of God. Christian leaders and Christian living has to be cross-shaped. I came across this book once on Christian... There are lots of books on Christian leadership. I came across this one. They smell like sheep. Not the first thing you probably ever thought of to describe Christian leaders. Apparently, they smell like sheep. I, the book is trying to say, you know, you're meant to look like the people that you're ministering to and caring for, right? The sheep. That You're meant to mix it in with them and a good shepherd would smell like the sheep, right? That, that's the point. I just think a better title, a better book, which I'll never bother to write, but Christian leaders, they look like the shepherd. They look like Jesus, not in terms of sandal and long hair or whatever else he looked like, but, but in terms of the cross. This is the character of Christian life and leadership. So let's return to where we started as I finish. Leadership for good starts here. How might you think about this as a follower of Jesus? Well, I want to say the first thing is leadership for good starts where? It starts here at the cross. That's where Christian leadership starts, at the cross. Life, Christian life and leadership in the same shadow. We imitate the Lord Jesus who poured out himself for others amidst worldly scorn and shame. But also leadership for good starts here at Sydney Uni. What can we make of that? Well, here's an interesting thing. Uh, Sydney Uni's had that tagline for, I don't know, about four or five years maybe. But um, years and years prior to that, a bunch of EU graduates were reflecting on what would they like to see happen from the EU for the sake of the world. And, you know, they came up with a, with a statement of what they would like to see happen from the EU. This is the statement they came up with years and years and years ago. They said, we'd love to see from the EU, we'd like to see a flood into God's church in Sydney, Australia and beyond of lay and vocational, and this is really interesting, Christian leaders. Those EU graduates years ago, they identified that, yes, there is something about Sydney Uni, just the sort of people who come to Sydney Uni, that often, I mean, you might have personal struggles in all sorts of different ways, but just coming from often a fairly privileged, you know, opportunity, 
there's something about the people who come to Sydney Uni and the particular gifts and skills that God's given that means that yes, they can be leaders in God's world. And that's true for you too. But instead of just say leadership for good, maybe what we want to say is leadership for God's global gospel good could start here in the EU. Could we see a flood of people from the EU into all of God's world? To all those places less reached and less resourced with the gospel. Places in Sydney, like Campsie, that are less reached and less resourced with the gospel, but a total of about 7Ks from the CBD. Like, could we see EU graduates flooding to places like that where churches are desperate for people who can speak English and can read the Bible? Do you meet those categories? Like, you know, like, we could see a flood, couldn't we? And not that you or me are the answer to the world's problems, because what do we learn from this passage? We are, we are nothing. It's God who brings the growth. But if we could embrace a servant heart, a sacrificial heart for God's globe and the great gospel need, then maybe we would see a flood from Sydney Uni EU. A flood into the less reached and less resourced of, of lay leaders, people going with their profession and just being a great church member, but also vocational workers, people who give up their career and go as a gospel worker into particular places. That would be a great thing. It requires two things. It requires God to work in our hearts and it requires us to make the sacrifice. So let's leave it. Thanks for listening to today's talk. The Evangelical Union, or EU, is a student club on campus at Sydney University that seeks to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. To join us or to find out more, please visit sydneyunieu.org.